Our God, how blessed are we that with complete freedom we have your word, we can read your word, we can proclaim your word, we can sit under the authority of your word. We give you thanks and do not take for granted this great joy of ours. We pray now that you would open our eyes to your truth. Jesus said he is the truth, and so show us Jesus in this time. Bless my mouth that it would speak truth. Bless your people's ears that it would hear truth. And let this not be just the stockpiling of information, but that we might live differently in the world that you have called us to live in, an account of this time together. Do this and more we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you a tolerant person? Now, some of you might want to know, what do you mean by tolerant? But for the most of us, we would say, yes, I, I really hope so. Gee, I, I hope that I'm tolerant, right? In our day, asking if you're a tolerant person is almost synonymous with asking, are you a decent human being, right? Because we know that in our day, if you're a decent human being, you're going to be a tolerant person. We know that everyone's supposed to be tolerant. This is what everybody knows. Sociologists say that in every culture, you'll find a certain set of beliefs, a certain set of principles and values that are shared by everyone in that society, everyone in that culture, that are just unquestioningly held. They're just virtues that are common to all of us. And I think it'd be fair to say that in our day, tolerance is definitely one of those virtues. It's one of those unquestioned beliefs, one of those values we hold and cherish that if we're going to be a society that moves forward, we should be a tolerant society. It's, it's such a virtue, in fact, such an unquestioned, highly held value for us that today the worst thing you could be is what? Intolerant, right? The worst thing you could be in our day is intolerant. Now, hold on to that thought for a second and then consider this. Time Magazine had an article called Christianity's Image Problem, or Christianity's, yeah, Image Problem. And in it, they conducted a poll among a bunch of non-Christians. Nearly 40% of those who were polled had a bad impression of Christianity, which is twice as many as just two decades ago. So in 20 years, we've doubled in the number of folks who have a bad impression of Christianity. And out of those who were polled, nine out of the top 12 perceptions about Christianity were all negative. And of those that were all negative, the problem that non-Christians had with Christianity weren't theological. So think of that, because it's very telling and eye-opening. Their problem wasn't, how could you believe someone rose from the dead? Or how could you believe the scriptures? How could you believe Jesus on this bloody cross? None of those. In fact, their principal problems with Christianity, the perception of Christianity, primarily revolved around the attitude of Christians. In fact, listen to some of the words described of this bad impression of Christianity. The top words that came out were hypocritical, anti-gay, anti-sinner, judgmental, and on and on the list went. So there's a bunch of words, but if you could boil it all down to a word, in one word, the problem that non-Christians have with Christianity is intolerance. Christians are intolerant. 
So as we continue in our series, unbelievable, what we've been doing for these weeks as, as a total of eight weeks, what we've been doing is we're looking at some of the common objections, some of the common obstacles, some of the common hurdles that folks have with Christianity. That there are some things, some principles, some hurdles that stand in the way that even if I wanted to consider Jesus and his gospel and Christianity, these hurdles are so high that unless they're cleared, I can't give this a fair shot, a fair hearing. And so we've been trying to address as honestly as we can some of these major objections to Christianity. And the one we're looking at today is, isn't Christianity intolerant? As we've been saying throughout this series, if you've got a question as we're preaching, there's a number on the screen behind me. You can text it anonymously there. We'll do our best to answer through our website this week. If you want a dialogue afterwards, you can talk with us today or throughout the week. There's groups of folks who will be talking through these things. But what we want to talk about in our time this morning is to answer this objection. Does Christianity make you intolerant? Or to say it simply, and, and I don't think I need to unpack it more, you know it, isn't Christianity intolerant? How do we respond? Well, the first thing we want to do is we want to unpack what we mean by the word intolerant. Because the reality is, what you mean when you say intolerant, and what I mean when I say intolerant, and what she means when she says intolerant, might all be different. Intolerant is one of those words that has had sort of a evolution in its meaning. It's sort of shifted and changed throughout the years. And so let me give you an example of, of why we need to talk about that. C.S. Lewis once wrote about how important the definition of words were and how dangerous the redefining of words were. He talked about it, he actually calls it the disaster that comes about when we redefine words. And so to give an example, he uses an innocuous word, a simple word, he uses the word gentleman. And Lewis says that gentleman was originally a word that meant a man who had a coat of arms and some landed property. Okay, so when you called someone a gentleman, you weren't paying them a compliment. When you said that someone wasn't a gentleman, you weren't giving them an insult, you were just stating fact. Because a gentleman was simply a man who had a coat of arms and some property. So you could be a dirtbag and still be a gentleman. You could be a scoundrel or a punk and still be a gentleman because it wasn't saying anything about behavior. It was just a matter of fact. But over time, well-intentioned, well-meaning people said, you know, what matters is not if someone has property or a coat of arms. What matters is if a man acts like a true gentleman should act. And so the word began to change. And so the word shifted to talk generally about behavior, about the kind of man that was favorable to you or not. And so we started using the word to say, you know, he's a true gentleman. The word changed some more and devolved, if you will, some more to becoming even less meaningful to just mean male. Right? When I walk into a room and I say, ladies and gentlemen... I'm not making any kind of comment about the men in the room. I'm basically just calling them males. And Lewis would say, you know what the problem is? We already had a word for male. You know what it was? It was male, right? And so we didn't need another word. And by changing the word, we've rendered it useless, pointless. Listen to Lewis's insight. He says this. A gentleman, once it has been refined out of its old coarse objective sense, means hardly more than a man whom the speaker likes. As a result, gentleman is now a useless word. 
We had lots of terms of approval already, so it was not needed for that use. On the other hand, if anyone, say in a historical work, wants to use it in its old sense, he cannot do so without explanations. It has been spoiled for that purpose. The word's been rendered useless. It's spoiled. And I think that the same thing has happened to the word tolerance. I think the same kind of shift has happened with that word, rendering it a useless word. If you look back in the day, the dictionary used to define tolerance this way. It said to tolerate was essentially to respect others' beliefs, practices, etc., without necessarily agreeing or sympathizing to put up with to bear. So tolerance used to mean you had an opinion, I had an opinion, she had an opinion, and we would recognize these different opinions, we'd be civil towards one another, we would sympathize while not agreeing. For example, let me give you another example. Encarta, the online or the, the computer software, used to define tolerance this way, the, to accept the existence of differing views. Over time, the definition shifted to the acceptance of differing views. You see that same dictionary, a subtle shift, but that slight shift is massive in its implications. Because it's the difference between you and I have different views and we accept the existence of those different views to you have a view which must become my view, I have a view which must become her view, and on and on it goes. See, that's a significant shift. Because in the past, when you talked about tolerating someone, you assumed disagreement. You assumed that you were putting up with something or having to bear with something. If you were tolerating something, you weren't affirming it, accepting it, celebrating it, because if you were, you wouldn't use the word tolerant. If you were agreeing with something, we already had a word for agreeing. It was agreeing, right? But when you use tolerance, it was for something else. So if I said, I tolerate Brussels sprouts, the idea for the hearer would be he could live without it, but he'll put up with it. If I celebrated, loved Brussels sprouts, I wouldn't have used the word tolerance to explain it. Now, you know this, and, and here's the funny thing. We speak of tolerance as this highest ideal. I mean, the greatest virtue, the best ethic there is. When we speak of tolerance, we use it as an incredibly positive word. And yet, think through that for a second. If, if your mother-in-law invited you over for dinner, and the next day a buddy asked you, how was dinner yesterday? And you said back, yeah, I can tolerate my mother-in-law, and her cooking is tolerable. Are you paying a really positive compliment? What if you didn't know and your mother-in-law was standing behind you? When you turn around, is she going to throw her arms around your neck and go, I am so happy you tolerate me. Or is she going to think what she already thinks, which is, I can't believe I let my kid marry you, right? <laughs> the reality is, we know very few people who want to be tolerated. What we all want is to be respected. Penn Jillette, a very outspoken, well-known atheist, has a very insightful comment on this. Listen to what he says. He says, what we call tolerance 
is often just condescending. It's often just saying, okay, you believe what you want to believe, that's fine with me. I think true respect, and then he goes on to say, it's one of the reasons I get along with fundamentalist Christians, because I can look them in the eye and say, you are wrong. They also know that I will always fight for their right to say that, and I will celebrate their right to say that, but I will look them in the eye and say, you're wrong. And fundamentalists will look me in the eye and say, you're wrong. And that, to me, is respect. He says, the more religious liberal people who go, there are many paths to truth, you just go and maybe you'll find your way, is the way you talk to a child. And I bristle at that. Now listen, if you watch Gillette, he's no sympathizer with Christianity. If you watch his shows, he's quite irreverent. He punt kicks Bibles, tosses them out all the time. And yet I think he's dead on here. Because he's saying, look, if tolerance means that you and I can't be civil with one another, and yet look one another in the eye and say, I think you're wrong. Shake hands and walk in peace away from one another. But rather, if we can't do that and must have to affirm one another, then he says that's not respect, that's condescending. Gillette says we may not agree with each other, but let's not condescend to the place where we have to say, you know what, 2 plus 2 is 4 and 5, because that's childish. That's condescending. He says we need the freedom to be able to disagree. Voltaire, the old French thinker, he once is attributed to having said this. He says, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. That's right. If tolerance simply means we affirm, accept, and celebrate everything and we cannot disagree anymore, then we're not headed towards the free and respectful society that you and I want to live in. If tolerance means we simply affirm one another in all things and merely disagreeing makes us narrow-minded or hateful, then I think C.S. Lewis would say tolerance also has become a useless word. So if you ask, is Christianity about tolerance? I would humbly submit to you that Christianity follows Jesus, and Jesus gave us a vision and an ethic that's better than tolerance. Let me say that again. If you asked, is Christianity about tolerance, I would submit to you humbly that Christianity follows Jesus, and Jesus taught us a way to act in society and with one another that is better than tolerance. Now, I need to explain what I mean by that. So turn in your Bibles for a moment to John chapter 8. This is the passage that Mike read for us. It'll be on the screen as well. When you turn to John 8, it's a very well-known story and passage. It's the story where a woman is caught in sin. She's caught in adultery. For those of you that do look in your Bible, you'll notice that there's a tiny footnote and if you look down at the bottom of the page, you'll see that there's some information there about manuscripts and some of the questions we have about this passage. For lack of time, I'm not going into all of that now, but if you do have a question about that, talk with me afterwards. But what we do have in this story is some principles that are consistent with other parts of Scripture, and so we want to consider this story. And, and here's what it is. Jesus shows up in the temple one day, and he's talking to a bunch of people. He sits on the floor, and he starts teaching. And as these people are listening to Jesus' teaching, a crowd bursts onto the scene. This is John 8, verse 3. This is what it says. 
The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, so what do you say? Now, here's what's happening. The religious leaders, and, and if you're not familiar with this part of the Bible, the religious leaders are not fans of Jesus, right? In fact, if there was a charge that they would throw at Jesus, it's that he was far too tolerant. The religious leaders would have thought he was way too lenient with sin and didn't take morality seriously enough. They would have definitely called him the king of tolerance, and so they didn't like him. So the religious leaders grab this woman who's been caught in adultery and throw her in front of Jesus, and they say, what should we do with her? Now, the background is there was a law. Israel was a theocracy. It was under the government of King God. Yahweh was their king. And so there were strict rules about what it meant to be God's people. So morality was taken seriously. So there was a, a rule that said if a couple was caught in the act of adultery, it was a capital offense. They could be put to death. Now, you didn't want every paranoid husband, suspicious husband, stoning his wife to death. And so there was really strict rules around it so that scholars say it was rarely, if ever, actually practiced. But as you read the story, there's a number of things that seem off, almost clue you into this is a bit shady. For example, these Pharisees and scribes who aren't fans of Jesus don't bring this woman, for example, to the Sanhedrin which was the ruling body of the day. Instead, they throw her in the middle of the temple street to Jesus, the itinerant Jewish preacher. I mean, there was nothing in the law that said you could just practice vigilante justice. They should have brought her to the ruling body, but they don't. Something's off. Or, or moreover, they don't wait because they're burdened to know what to do till Jesus is in private and say, Rabbi, we have a, t we have a question. What should we do with this woman? No, the, the crowd is part of the deal for them. The more people, the better, because this is a publicity stunt for them. And perhaps most of all, the law said that this sinful couple would be punished. There's, there's, where's the man? Right? The law had nothing in it that would say, you just drag the woman out and, and do something to her. No, the, the whole thing seems to be a bit off. And that's when you begin to realize what this is, is this is a setup. This is a, a trap. What they want to do is they want to get Jesus. And, and that's when you begin to realize, and it becomes disturbingly obvious to you, that the religious folks in the story would gladly trade her life as a pawn if it meant that they get one step closer to checkmating Jesus. I mean, they will literally bash her down with stones if it gets them one closer to nabbing Jesus. And our suspicions are sort of confirmed in the next verse. Look at 8, verse 6. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So there it is. John's letting us know this whole thing is a trap. And, and hear this. It's actually a perfect trap. It's a perfect setup because either way, they got Jesus. What do I mean? If he says, stone her, then all these mobs of people that have been following Jesus because he's so loving and so compassionate and so gracious and so forgiving might turn on him. In our day, you'd call him intolerant, narrow-minded, bigoted, judgmental. 
right? And, and moreover, the deeper danger was even more severe. It was that even though the Jews had some books on their laws, they were under Roman occupation. And Rome wasn't particularly fond of vigilante executions in their street. So if Jesus does say stone her, he's going to get in trouble with the Romans, which is exactly what these religious folks want. Now, on the other hand, if he says don't stone her, then what's he doing? He's compromising the law. He's essentially saying God's commands don't matter. Morality isn't such a big deal. We shouldn't concern ourselves overly with holiness or, or virtue or values. None of those things really matter. And so either way, they got him. If he says stoner, he's intolerant and condemns. If he says don't, he's compromising on his convictions and virtues and values and morality doesn't matter. Either way, they got him right where they want him. Do you see in the story that even though they drag out the woman, it's really Jesus who's on trial here in John 8. And so Jesus remains silent. He stoops down to the ground and he scribbles something on the floor. And we have no idea what he wrote and plenty of ink has been spilled in trying to guess what it might have been. And after a while of not saying anything, they know they have him right where they want him. They keep asking until Jesus responds. John 8 verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now here's why this is brilliant. He doesn't reject the law. He affirms it. And he doesn't compromise. He doesn't say her guilt doesn't matter or, or throw her sin under the rug. He says, throw a stone at her, but he turns the tables a bit and says, just make sure that the one who throws the first stone has no condemning guilt in himself. Especially in this case, if you were going to bring up a charge of capital offense, you were going to have to be the one to throw the first stone. And if you were doing something shady, then if you falsely killed someone, you'd end up with the same punishment you just dealt out. And so Jesus essentially turns the table on them and says, you, you make sure before you throw this stone, though, that you have no condemning sin in yourself. The force of Jesus' sentence and the force of his statement turns them from looking at her sin to start to look at their own sin. And so they begin to turn inward to look at their own sin. Now, just as a word, as a caveat, what we shouldn't read from this is that there will never be times where we speak to one another in correction about sin. Right? The Bible tells us we have no business judging outside our family, the body, the church. But we do judge one another. Jesus said, though, when you do that, make sure before you take out the speck from your brother's eye, you take care of the two-by-four that's sticking out of your own eye. After you take care of the two-by-four, make sure you go and grab the speck. And so what he essentially does is he says, look at your own sin, and of course you know what happens. Look at John 8, verse 9 and following. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, let me tell you why the message of Jesus is better than our current culture's fight over the message of tolerance. 
It's because if this story were today, here's how it would have played out. You'd have the religious moral side. And they would have looked at this woman exactly like the Pharisees and scribes did. They would have had no problem parading her out in public and shaming her in front of everyone. And the sad reality is that she wasn't a person for them. They'd have no problem making her just the face of an issue. And I want you to hear that. Because non-Christians look at the church and go, you, you don't hear anyone's story. You don't know their struggle. You don't know their difficulties. You're not mindful of any of those things. It's just an issue for you to win or lose. It's just a debate for you to have. They have no idea who this woman is, what her background is, what her story is, what in her life got her to this place, that she's this loose woman. None of that matters. She's just the face of an issue for them. And so the religious folks would have had no problem parading her out, making a public show of her, and in fact, she would have helped advance their cause to explain all that's wrong with society and why we need to go back to traditional values. All the while, they would have had rocks in their hands ready to pelt her for her sin while not taking any looks at their own. And here, this seven-mile road. If you're here and you're a Christian, this is how the culture sees us. The culture sees us with rocks in our hands ready to pelt others while not dealing with our own sins. You know, you, we should think about that. We should grieve over that. This week I was thinking, and, and 1 Timothy 3 kept coming to me. In 1 Timothy 3, there's these descriptions of what an elder should be, but it's applicable for all mature Christians. And one of the things that should be about all mature Christians is that they're well thought of by outsiders, respected by outsiders. So the idea is that someone who knows you outside of these four walls would go, oh, so-and-so, yeah, they're great. They're hardworking, they're loving, they're kind. Uh, and when they find out you're a Christian, it should commend Christianity as beautiful in their sight. Well thought of by outsiders. And yet, many have a bad impression of Christians. This is the religious side. And if this story were happening on our day, now you have the tolerance folks. And they would have looked at this woman and they would have said, how dare you call her a sinner? How unbelievably offensive. In fact, the only sin left is to call out sin. How dare you? They might have pointed out that these were two consenting adults. They might have pointed out that their bedroom is none of your business. They might have even congratulated her for the boldness that it took to express her sexuality and then helped her find a lawyer to prosecute this hate crime. And Jesus steps into the story. And Jesus steps into the story and he first deals with the religious. And he goes right at them. He goes to the moral and he says, let the one of you who has no sin be the first one to throw a stone. And if you could, you'd almost hear the tolerance folks in the background cheering and applauding. That's right, go get him, Jesus. You see that? And then he follows that by looking at the woman and he says, is anyone here to condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. More cheers, two more cheers. That's right, Jesus. And then he turns to the woman and says, now you go and sin no more. And then you hear this groan. Right? He was doing so well. But then he turns to her and he has the audacity to say, now you go and sin no more. Essentially to say, this life of sin that you're leading, you break it today. You make a clean break with that sin. You turn, you repent, 
and you change. You see, is Jesus practicing tolerance? No, he, he's better than tolerance. Jesus is better than tolerance. He does not condemn her, but he does not condone her sin. He is full of compassion, but he doesn't compromise his convictions. Jesus is better. If you are here today and you'll come to Jesus, he's not going to condemn you. But he's also not going to condone your sin. If you're here and you're, you're willing to come today to Jesus, I promise you by his word, he will not condemn you. Whoever you are, whatever your stuff is, whatever your junk is, you don't have to hide any of it. Listen to me. He would tell you, I know what it is anyway. You don't have to hide it. He doesn't clean fish before he catches them, as the saying goes. You can come exactly as you are. You don't have to change a thing about you to come to Jesus. He will not condemn you. And at the same time, he'll say to you, but I'm not going to be condescending either. I'm not going to say you've got your way and I've got my way and you can follow me with your way. I'm going to point out some stuff in your life and you're not going to like it. But I promise you I am not here to condemn you. In fact, I would have rather died than condemn you. In fact, I did die so that you would not be condemned. I won't condone your sin. And I'm going to point to things in your life and there's ample time for you and I to work through it. If you'll come to me and let me come into your heart. We're not going to be co-partners here. I'm going to be Lord. And I'm going to point at some things that you don't like. But I promise I know what I'm doing and I'll change you to look more like me. He's not going to condemn, but he's not going to condone. And the, the reality is if you've encountered Jesus, he offends us all. You know why he's beautifully not intolerant? Because he is equally indiscriminatory offensive to all. He offends the religious and the irreligious. He offends the moral and the immoral. The Pharisees and the prostitutes, he's got a message for them both. And if you encounter the real Jesus, at some point he's going to offend you. And at some point he's going to call you to change. So you should ask yourself, am I changing I'm not asking for the rate of change, but I am asking for the fact of change. Am I changing? Because if you've encountered Jesus, he's going to bring up some of your junk. And he's going to work on you and change you. Friends, the gospel of Jesus is better than the gospel of tolerance. It's a better message. And if you're here and you're a Christian, I want you to hear this and then we'll close. We have a calling that is better than tolerance. Hear me again. We have a, a calling that is better, deeper, stronger, thicker, harder than tolerance. Like Jesus, we're called to be people who hold convictions with compassion. Who neither condemn sinners nor condone sin. If you're a follower of Jesus, hear me. Am I prescribing tolerance to you? No, I'm prescribing something better than tolerance. Something deeper, stronger, truer, and harder. Jesus taught us to love. 
compassion, love. And I want you to think about this for a second. What a strange day we have come to when tolerance is a higher value than love. What a backwards way of thinking when we have come to the place where tolerance is a better ethic than love. I watched this clip of an interview with Piers Morgan from CNN and a pastor. So he's drill, grilling this pastor and he says, listen, do you preach tolerance? And so the pastor responds by saying, well, I follow Jesus and Jesus taught us to love our neighbors. And he said, no, 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 do you preach tolerance? So he said again, you know, Jesus told us to love our neighbors and that includes all kinds of neighbors. And he said, no, no, are you tolerant? And this went back and forth as they're fighting over tolerance versus love. And as you step back, you go, have we really arrived at the day where tolerance is a better value than love. You go home with a bouquet of flowers for your wife, and she goes, sweetheart, why'd you do this? And you say back, because I tolerate you so much. I'm always tolerating you. Jesus says, love your neighbor, not tolerate them. It's, it's a harder call that he's given to his followers. A deeper, stronger, truer call. Love your neighbor. Your neighbor, love your neighbor, your poor neighbor, your rich neighbor, your Jewish, Buddhist, atheist, Hindu, Muslim neighbor, your lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual neighbor, your Democrat, Republican neighbor, your conservative, liberal neighbor, your moral, immoral neighbor, your religious, irreligious neighbor. Love your neighbor. And Jesus was wise enough to know that your neighbor wouldn't always share your beliefs. Love your neighbor. And, and don't think with your doors closed and some sentiment in your heart, that's what love is. No, Jesus is also going to tell his followers, and I've shown you what love is. Not this invisible feeling in your heart. Remember the time when I got on my knees and I washed the feet of the ones I love. And, and remember that that included someone who was going to deny me three times and the guy who was going to betray me to death. I washed his feet too. I washed his feet too. Love your neighbor. Remember when they, they put me on a cross and I died for people who very sincerely disagreed with me. I blessed those who cursed me. I prayed for those who persecuted me. I've taught you what it looks like to love. Love your neighbor. And said, my road, please, let's not let this be theory that we carry around for another week. This week, apply this word. Love your neighbor this week. There's a coworker. there's a friend, there's a neighbor neighbor. Love your neighbor this week. The guy who's always ragging on you for your Christian beliefs, you, you buy him the best lunch this week. Love your neighbor. Jesus is not preaching tolerance. He's preaching a deeper ethic, a better ethic, a harder ethic. Love. It's compassion. But hear this too. While you have compassion, have convictions. We don't condemn sinners, nor do we condone sin. We have compassion without compromise. We hold our compassion and we hold our convictions. And so Jesus would also tell you, his followers, what I've said is wrong, don't you dare say is right. 
Where I've drawn straight lines, don't you dare make them crooked. And if the day comes, and when the day comes, when it will cost you to have convictions, you bear the cost. Listen, if you think about the world into which Christianity was first born, Christianity was born into the Roman Empire. It was an incredibly tolerant society. The Roman Empire was incredibly tolerant. In fact, when they conquered a people, they just took in that people's God and added them to the pantheon of their gods. No problem. Rome had tolerance for everyone except Christianity. Because when Christianity burst onto the scene, it made this audacious claim, Jesus alone is Lord. Not Caesar, Jesus is Lord. Until the point that the incredibly tolerant empire had no tolerance left for Christianity. And fed Christians to the lions and burned them as human torches for their gardens. Now listen, I'm not whining, I'm not complaining, I'm not doomsday on you. But I am saying, when the day comes, when it will cost us something to have convictions, may God help us to bear the cost. I'm not whining and I'm not complaining and I'm not going doomsday on you, but I am saying, I can't tell you how many times I'm impressed with the thought that it will be much harder for our children to follow Jesus faithfully than it was for us. I can't tell you how many times I've already been praying for my sons and daughters and your sons and daughters that they would follow Jesus with greater fidelity than even we did because I really think it will cost them much more than it cost us. I think it will be much harder for them to have convictions than it was for us. And when that day comes for them or in years for us, may we have compassion and convictions. May we not compromise. May we hear Jesus remind us on that day what he already told his followers. John 15, verse 18, hear this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Convictions with compassion. Convictions without condemning. Compassion without condoning. That's our call. A message of tolerance, no, something better. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. You hold compassion and you hold convictions. This is the message of Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we would ask that you would take this word grab each of our hearts and almost, if we could see it physically, drive us to Jesus right now. Let us come to him exactly as we are. You're not asking us to change one thing about us to come to Jesus. We can come just as we are. And so in this room, take the religious and the irreligious, the moral and the immoral, the left, the right, the whoever and the whatever, bring us to Jesus. Bring us to him so that in him we'll find someone who is better than tolerant, who loves us enough to lay down his life for us even when we were his enemies. 
Even when we sincerely disagreed with him and did not think highly of him, he died for us. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is love, that God laid down his life for us and made us his friends. Oh Lord, would your love compel us to you? And would that same love go to work on us so that day by day, progressively, slowly, though it may be, you're changing us to be more like Jesus. Oh, Holy Spirit, bring us all to Christ even now so that we might be compassionate people in society who hold convictions without compromise, that we might be known for our love, that the people who look around us could not deny that they were loved by us. Everyone knows what it feels like to be loved. Let our neighbors be able to say they felt loved by us. Let someone this week be able to say that the people of Seven Mile Road loved them well this week. Oh, Lord, prepare us to hold fast to your truth for the days to come, for a thousand generations, that we might be compassionate people with convictions as Jesus our Lord was. Hear our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.